being revolutionary by excluding or insulting religious people. Every day I get messages from Marxists, leftists, communists, asking me how I reconcile my political stances with being Muslim, as if they contradict, giving me hypotheticals, insulting my intelligence and understanding of history and analysis of political and historical texts. Religious Bolsheviks were very much a part of the Russian Revolution. Plenty of religious people thrived under communism around the world. Of course, not always. Over a 70-year period, there is nuance and poor decisions and people suffering as well. But to summarize communism as a godless state is wrong on so many levels. There are also numerous historically significant Islamic Marxist and socialist movements throughout history. There is much to be said about what Marx and Engels wrote on religion. I mean, while they wrote about religion being the sigh of the oppressed, allowing people to endure hardship and speaking positively of that, they also believed that in an ideal society, you wouldn't need to resort to religion for those feelings of relief. Of course, there's many hypotheses for this. Many people believe that Marx was trying to distance himself from his Jewishness due to extreme anti-Semitism at the time for survival. Also, there's the whole context under which the atrocities committed by the Orthodox Russian Church under the Imperial Russian Empire. There is just so much context to this, not to mention religious trauma. A lot of people in these leftist communities have trauma from organized religion. When man profits from faith, and organizes faith in a way it was never meant to be organized in. An individual's practice of faith does not involve or affect you at all, however. It might just be easier for you to admit that, to admit you don't like religion, to admit you're Islamophobic, or admit you have religious trauma. It's okay. I'll understand. I'm a big girl. I'll disagree with you. But there's some validity to your reasoning, I'm sure. People analyze history and texts and come to different conclusions. That's just the way it is. There's not one way to view something. And I believe that communism and Islam are completely compatible. From its economic system, its wealth distribution, and its welfare, the emphasis of always being on the side of the oppressed and against the oppressor, fighting for egalitarianism and equality among all people, you can disagree with me, but please don't project your hate for religion onto me and my analysis. We're all valid here. All that does is push potential comrades away from our movements. And even the Bolsheviks didn't do that. And both communism and Islam are stigmatized negatively in the same way, cherry-picking the worst examples of leadership to promote hateful propaganda. I just expect there to be more understanding and solidarity because of that. You may have heard of the Red Cross, but do you know about the Red Crescent? The Red Crescent was created after the Russo-Turkish War. And while many Muslim-majority countries have the Red Crescent instead of the Red Cross, the Soviet Union was one of the few nations to incorporate the Red Crescent from the very beginning due to its large Muslim population. So, in case you don't know, the Red Cross and Crescent is a humanitarian movement made up of volunteers who aid mostly in the medical sense during wartime, conflict, or natural disasters. The Red Cross initially was founded by Jean-Henri de Nantes in the mid-19th century due to the massive death toll after the Austro-Sergenian War. He wanted to create something to help people no matter what side they were on. Now, the Red Crescent was 
organized by the Ottoman government in 1865 following the Turco-Russian and Crimean Wars. It has since become one of the most important charitable organizations in the Muslim world. In 1918, Lenin created a committee to decide what the Red Cross will be doing internationally and domestically within the Soviet Union. By 1923, the committee had decided to conjoin the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, the Red Crescent representing the nearly 20% Muslim population of the Soviet Union and their needs, with 11 republics having their own Red Cross societies and four republics having Red Crescent societies, all working with each other. The official Soviet structure of the Red Cross and Crescent is quite interesting because it was made up of millions of volunteer nurses, health station professionals, and volunteer public health inspectors, all of whom help medical workers in the prevention of infectious diseases, in the overseeing of public health services and amenities in cities and villages, in improving working conditions and living conditions, and in the provision of emergency and first aid at scenes of incidences. Private nurses also worked for the society's committees to make home visits to those who've become disabled as a result of war injuries or injuries suffered at work who have no one else to care for them. The Soviet Union really pushed volunteering for the Red Cross and Crescent and in donating money to them. They even had their own journal and magazine. In the United States, we don't often hear about the Red Crescent, though it does exist. And while our Muslim population is more about 1%, it would certainly be nice to have that sort of representation and acknowledgement of that community within the country. In general, people often mischaracterize the Soviet Union and its tolerance for religion, especially with such a large population of historically Muslim people. What that looked like, what that meant, who they are, and how intermixed they are throughout the entire Soviet Union as jobs became more open to all people and travel became more frequent. The symbolism for the Red Cross and the Red Crescent is always put together, and when we look at advertisements and propaganda posters throughout Soviet history from the very beginning, you see this depiction. Sometimes you even see a very clearly represented Muslim woman in these sorts of posters as well. And while these posters mostly encourage people to volunteer, that representation really means a lot. So here are some of my favorite propaganda posters of the Red Cross and Red Crescent featuring the symbolism of both the cross and the crescent. Firstly, we have these three girls. We have some representation there. There's this one with a child who's very, very happy to fly that flag of both the cross and crescent. This is an interesting photo featuring multiracial kids. It's interesting. <coughs> this one is a pretty standard one, after wartime, just Red Cross or Red Crescent nurses helping the injured and sick. This is probably the most famous poster, and the most common one you'll see about the Red Cross and Crescent. There were also lots of stamps that featured the Cross and Crescent, um, and those who donated blood or volunteered were often gifted medals and pins. For those of you that grew up within Russia, it might not be a shock at all. You always knew of the Red Crescent's existence because it is just everywhere, everywhere that the Red Cross is. Myself, growing up in the United States, I didn't know that the Red Crescent Society even existed until I began studying the history of World War II from the Eastern Front, and I came across imagery of the Crescent next to the cross, and that was my first exposure. I was probably 17. That's kind of late in life to know that these sorts of things exist, don't you think? 
but it's also very important in how we understand the world and history and the people within these locations. The Soviet Union is often talked about as though it's some sort of monolith and as if there is extreme forms of religious oppression. No thanks to the massive spreading of anti-religious propaganda without proper historical context. But having this sort of context and understanding of Muslims actively being included into things by the government from the very beginning, of course, in a 70-year period, things change, bad decisions happen, whatever. But what I'm talking about is, in general, the Muslim community was always recognized in advertisements, in posters, things were localized, and in very important aspects like public health and volunteering for bettering society and helping in natural disasters and war, of course they're going to include all people of the society. And I think the reason why many of us don't assume this is a part of Soviet culture and history is because we like to copy and paste our own Western ideals. And in the Western world, we often forget about the minorities in our community, even the significant ones. Of course, Muslims, nearly 20%, that's a huge minority of the population. But comparatively, how we treat Muslims in the United States, yeah, they got us beat there. I mean, you only really see someone in hijab if it's for them talking about their religion or for a company to pretend to be woke or something and, you know, someone like me actually going into their store. You never really know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I suppose some can look at this representation and be like, oh, it's performative. It's kind of hard to be purely performative when, again, they make up a large percentage of the population. But I hope you all can look at advertisements and pictures like this and change maybe a little bit of your perception of what the Soviet Union looked like, what their propaganda also looked like. I think a big issue in the Western English-speaking world is even when we are shown Soviet propaganda, we're only shown certain kinds, and it doesn't give you the whole picture or scope or even the localization, how many are in different languages, who they all include, different color palettes and style. We really only are introduced to a very small amount of them, and so hopefully this can open Open your eyes and broaden your perspective a little bit about what the diversity, the religious diversity, the ethnic diversity, the multinationalism that was celebrated within the Soviet Union, and what that looked like and what that scope was. Of course, largest country on earth, it's going to be more than just a bunch of East Slavs, but we don't always think about that. What about you? Did you know about the Red Crescent before this? Did you know about these posters? Let me know down below. My name is Lady Izdahar. I'm a historian on Eastern Europe and Russia. Thank you for joining me, and you can find me on all of these places, and hopefully I'll get my permanently banned TikTok back soon. That sucks that it's gone. And if you are one of the lucky few in this world that is burning and falling apart that has some extra cash, join my Patreon and support me there. Be inspired by history. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Propaganda Analysis. Today I'm going to be talking about this poster. So yes, I'm yet again going to talk about Islam. Let me start off by reading you what it says in both Cyrillic and Arabic script. It says, Comrade Muslims, enemies of the working people encroach on freedom. Only you yourself can protect your families. Only Soviet power will deliver you your red free steps, mountains and rocks. I like that they're addressing all of the major Muslim majority regions there. 
go to your Muslim equestrian regiments of general training. Enter the cavalry courses, comprehensive training, all under the Red Star. So they're encouraging the relatively large Muslim population to fight back because they are being encroached upon, which is truly what was happening at this time, specifically in Central Asia, but also happening a bit in the Caucasus and the Volga region as well. Very wealthy, wealth-hoarding, self-proclaimed muftis were taking advantage of the local Muslim populations who were very, very illiterate. Some of the most illiterate parts of the former Russian Empire were the Muslim-majority ones, and they could not understand their Islamic rights if they wanted to. The Bolsheviks offered them this form of freedom and fighting back against them. And I think there's a lot to be said about the difference between atheism and an atheist state, in which you can still individually practice your religion, but on a governmental level, no religion is pushed upon anyone. This poster is dated to be around the 1920s, probably the early 1920s, and there were many posters like it at the time, individualized for the different regions and villages that Muslims primarily resided in, in the Caucasus, Volga region, and the steppes of Central Asia. Historically, Muslims have taken up about 15 to 20 percent, it fluctuates, of the population of the former Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and Russia today. And while some problematic posters did exist and not everyone was understood or treated fairly for their faith, on a governmental level, there were mass efforts to integrate the working Muslim people to be a part of the greater common community and with relative respect towards their faith, addressing them as Muslims and acknowledging what cultural aspects became a part of common culture within the Soviet Union from Islam. So of course that doesn't mean everything was always perfect and that everyone within the entirety of the Soviet Union always treated every Muslim with respect or understood the faith at all. Again, most Muslims at the time didn't understand their own faith due to their own illiteracy and the abuse and oppressive governance they had forced upon them. But there were legitimate efforts on a governmental level to be inclusive of the Muslim people, as we see even when it comes to propaganda efforts. Do posters like this surprise you? I understand if they do, but they shouldn't, which is why I'm showing you them. Assalamu alaikum, comrades. Today we're going to be talking about the origins of the hammer and sickle. Hi, my name is Lady Izdahar and I'm a historian on Eastern Europe and Russia. I particularly focus on cultural history and the context that can be derived from that, but today I find it necessary to talk about the origins of the hammer and sickle because it's not talked about and there's a lot of confusion, especially on whether or not it's offensive. In short, the hammer and sickle represents proletariat solidarity, that is, the solidarity of workers. The hammer representing the industrial workers, and the sickle representing the farmers and peasantry or agricultural workers. Those two traditionally being considered what makes up the working class of people by communist party. Something really interesting that I don't see enough people talk about is that Farm tools and equipment of industry tend to be used historically as representatives of the working class people or the proletariat, long before the Soviets did. We see this showing up in Chilean currency in the 1890s, as well as famously the plow is used by the Irish citizen army, unveiled in 1914, but then used in Eastern Rising a couple of years later. 
and today the starry plow is a signifier of worker solidarity. But how did it officially come to be in the Soviet Union? Lenin held a competition. But also being an important symbol of the Russian Revolution, the hammer and sickle is in almost every Soviet socialist flag and emblem throughout the entirety of the USSR. Let me show you those. And perhaps I should put them on a map because some of you don't know geography. So first we have the Russian SFSR. Yes, Russia was its own independent republic and this is the flag for it, not what you're expecting, right? Then there's the Ukrainian SSR. The flag for Belarus is actually almost identical to the flag today, with the exception of the hammer and sickle, of course. Then there's Uzbekistan, the Kazakh SSR, a lot of blue lines, interesting. The blue actually represents mightiness and beauty. So this is the Georgian SSR flag, and it's probably one of the best. I mean, it's an exciting hammer and sickle. Here's Azerbaijan, Lithuania, the Moldovan SSR, also the current flag of Transnistria, so it's one of the only current hammer and sickle featuring flags. This is Latvia, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, Turkmenistan, and Estonia, another one with a wave. Now you may be thinking, um, Istahar, these are not the hammer and sickle Soviet flags that I'm thinking of. What about this flag? What does this represent? Well, this Soviet flag represents all of the Soviet socialist republics. Also important to point out that with the exception of the Moldovan SSR, which is now used as the flag of Transnistria, none of these flags with the hammer and sickle are currently in use anymore. The hammer and sickle was also adopted by similar movements around the world and other international communist parties. I recently came across this really interesting graph. And feel free to pause to take a closer look. I actually found this on DeviantArt, but yeah, it goes over all of the major regions in the entire world and their local party flags and their preferred use of farm and industrial tools in the symbolism. It is slightly out of date. I know they're definitely missing a certain party in the US, um, and I'm sure in other parts of the world as well. Comment and tell me which one's your favorite, by the way. Over the years, the hammer and sickle took on other meanings as well, like the hammer being power and the sickle being efficiency. There's also some parallels with gender equality, the hammer being the man and the sickle being the woman, all to represent the equality amongst all genders brought by communism under the Soviet Union, and the importance of them working together, side by side, not segregated like in many Western societies at that time. Also, the hammer and sickle being equally important, not one being weaker than the other in particular. But is it offensive? If you are someone on the internet who uses the hammer and sickle on their profile, you've probably gotten comments like these before, that it's the same thing as a swastika. Am I allowed to say that on YouTube? I really don't know. You know what I mean. But it is not even comparable. But this all depends on how you view things. For me, I don't consider it a bad symbol, a negative symbol, a symbol of oppression, but someone else might. In fact, in other countries, the symbol is banned. Mostly in former Eastern Bloc countries to some degree, like it can only be used in a historical reference, but also in Indonesia, Taiwan, and South Korea. You can't use it at all. Well, I mean, you can, you just can't be caught. 
while of course, and I talk greatly about this, I never mean to invalidate people's lived experiences, the good or the bad, we have a tendency in the Western English-speaking world to focus on the bad experiences under communism and socialism and the former Soviet Union. But we also should validate those who had perfectly fine, normal, outstanding lives, and their stories just don't get highlighted enough. Because while some people see the hammer and sickle as a memory of bad times or times they escaped, whether or not they are currently just justifying their reasons for leaving by misremembering it as being worse than it might have actually been, please don't hurt me, I'm empathetic towards all. The reality is the vast majority of people see the hammer and sickle as representing the progress and change brought under communism and the potential for more of that to be brought. A country that sacrificed today for an ambitious tomorrow. For see how they're building. This was empty land eight years ago. They're hungry for accommodation. For many, it holds deep importance and meaning for them in their lives, in their families' lives, and for the lives they hope to have in the future. Comparing the hammer and sickle to anything other than what it is is a false equivalency. There is nothing comparable. I personally feel like any controversy that it brings is quite fabricated. Of course, you can and will disagree with me. That's fine. But just remember, to a vast majority of the world and those who lived under the hammer and sickle, it represents something great and not tragic like English-speaking sources might want you to believe. Let me get my hammer and sickle. I have one on hand, actually I have two on hand, but here's the more iconic one on the Soviet flag. You know, who does this really offend though? That's something else to think. If you are taking offense by a symbol that represents equality of all working people, of all genders, a betterment of life, and the empowerment of those who were previously enduring harsh working conditions and serfdom, if that bothers you, um, maybe you should do some introspection because a symbol does not individually represent your personal negative experience that you might have had. Again, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to grieve whatever you went through or that your experience isn't valid, but is the symbol to blame? But is the harm? What do you think? How do you feel about the hammer and sickle? Honestly, I think it is quite iconic, as the kids say. I think it's incredibly smart to symbolize literal tools wielded by the working class that were empowered through communism. It's, it's quite genius, to be honest, to have such overt and literal representation of those workers that this empowered. It also just aesthetically looks really nice. I think there's a lot of critique about leftist communist Marxists on the internet and how they're just doing it for the aesthetic. The thing is, the aesthetic is really nice in all actuality. There's also methodology behind those aesthetics. So is it really that bad to enjoy what things look like as well? They don't have to be boring or ugly for them to be meaningful and useful and important and hold a legacy. It looks great. And the meaning is great. And I personally really like it. But what do you think? Are you offended by it? Do you think it could be better? Do you like any of the other adaptations to it? More than the OG? Let me know. But thank you for listening to me ramble a little bit. I hope to be creating more long-form videos in the future on this channel. And I would love to talk more about the cultural history of the Soviet Union and perhaps some more on women's liberation and Islam in the USSR. If those sound interesting to you, please subscribe, like, follow, all of those things. You can also follow me 
on Instagram, where I'm very active in my stories and will respond to you much faster. Follow me on TikTok, in which most of my following is, and hopefully you can come this way soon if you would like to support me and what I do here. Um, follow me on Patreon. Have a great day. You be inspired by history. In 1942, the Indian Confederation of America, consisting of about 27 tribes, gifted Stalin a war bonnet, declaring him an honorary chief and an outstanding warrior. And this was big news at the time. Many large American newspapers even ran stories about this. Though Stalin couldn't visit this ceremony himself due to the growing complexity of World War II at the time, which is the reason behind this choice. Stalin and the Soviet army on the Eastern Front had dispelled the myth that Germany's army couldn't be beat. And that was a big deal for all nations involved in the war at the time. In fact, this is what was said during the ceremony. We present Joseph Stalin with the chief's headdress in which he should wear as the distinguished chief of our tribes as a symbol of our unity in the struggle against Hitler and our admiration for his leadership in this struggle. That speech and this headdress was gifted by Chief Fallen Tree of the Mohawk Nation, who was also an iron worker in the Navy Steelyard. This is the headdress today, which is now in the storeroom of the Museum of Modern History in Russia, previously the Museum of Revolution. Russia has a long and interesting history with the indigenous peoples of North America. In fact, a couple years ago, there was a proposed statue in the works to commemorate the indigenous lives lost by colonizers coming to the United States. One of the most famous photographs out of World War II is this. Soviet soldiers hanging the Soviet flag over a destroyed and newly liberated Berlin. But did you know that this flag was originally hung by Muslims? Ramadan Mubarak, comrades, let me tell you about that. Initially, this flag was hung by Rakhine John Koshkobayev, now a national hero of Kazakhstan. Koshkobayev was born October 19, 1924 in what is now Kazakhstan. He was left orphaned at age 13, and at the end of grade 7, he entered a factory school. With the outbreak of war at age 16, he went on to join the rifle regiment in the city of Kokchetov, where soldiers from Kazakhstan and the republics of Central Asia underwent military training. This all happened two months before his 18th birthday. But he stayed in this training until the summer of 1943, when he was then sent to the command infantry school. He graduated with honors and then went to the front line. His platoon won many battles, some that even ended up in hand-to-hand -hand combat. In the days leading up to his infamous moment in Berlin, his platoon exterminated more than 200 German soldiers and officers, captured 184, and also captured 14 field guns, 27 heavy machine guns, and many other weapons. By the end of the war, Lieutenant Kruzhkobayev was the commander of the 1st Rifle Platoon of the 3rd Rifle Company of the 675th Rifle Regiment of the 150th Rifle Division. So what happened in Berlin? 
Well, he was the first soldier to officially raise the Soviet flag at the Reichstag building in Berlin, having placed the flag by a staircase in the opera hall after sneaking into the building. At nightfall, Kushkobayev and several of his comrades raised the flag on the roof. However, because they had raised the flag in nighttime when it was too dark to take a photo, none of them were part of the iconic recreation of the Soviet soldiers raising the flag on the 2nd of May. The flag they rose happened on the 30th of April, and it was shot down by German snipers shortly before the building was taken over by Germans again. Though, by May 2nd, the Soviets retook control of the building and raised the flag again, taking that iconic photograph. He received the Hero of the Soviet Union Award due to these efforts, and then in 1999, he was also decreed Hero of Kazakhstan. There is now a statue of him raising the flag in Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan, to honor his achievements. Later, after the fighting actually simmered down, and the Soviet Union went to then rehang the flag in a form of staging, four different men were involved in the now famous photograph. One of them being Abdul Hakim Ismailov of Dagestan. Abdul Hakim was born July 1st, 1916 in Dagestan, and he is of Kumik descent. He first fought in the Soviet-Finnish War and then in the Great Patriotic War. During the war years, he would be wounded five times, but each time he returned to duty. He was at the front since 1942, as part of the 147th Infantry Regiment, he fought through Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, and half of Germany. He liberated Odessa and Warsaw. It's important to know that everyone who was involved in storming Reichstag had a Soviet flag with them, so many different people claim to have hoisted it up, including the three men involved in the iconic photograph and Abdul Hakim. Though unlike Rakim Jam, they were not the first. At the request of TASS photojournalist Evgeny Keldi on May 2nd, 1945, Abdul Hakim Ismailov of Dagestan, Alexei Kavalev of Kiev, and Leonid Gorichev of Belarus installed the red banner over Reichstag in order to capture the event on photographic film. And although he did not become hero of the Soviet Union, in 1996 he was decreed hero of the Russian Federation and lived all the way until 2010, a very long life. He also has many streets named after him in Dagestan today. So those are just two Muslims particularly involved in that photograph and event. Though the Soviet Union consisted of about 15% of the population being Muslim. Which of course makes sense given the geography and the history. And yes indeed, religion was practiced individually though that looked different over the 70-year period. The ethnic minorities in the Soviet Union, which were primarily made up of Muslims, made up about 20% of the combat units in World War II, and about 80% of the engineering troops. In fact, the Soviet Union recognized that discrimination based on ethnicity and religion was extremely bad for morale. This resulted in a series of policies designed to integrate ethnic minorities into the Red Army, which consisted of printing everything in the many languages of the Soviet Union, as well as requiring high-ranking officers to know more than one language of the Soviet Union. A lot of the cultural particularities of these different people groups became a part of common culture in the Soviet Union after the shared experiences of World War II. Hats like Tubatyeka, 
primarily previously worn by the Muslim population, became a common hat amongst all people. Slavic soldiers learned to take care of their weapons from the Central Asian and Afghaz soldiers they fought along with who've had long-held traditions of taking care of their weapons, treating them like living beings. And even song and dance from these Muslim-majority regions of the Soviet Union became part of the common music scene of the entirety of the Soviet Union. Muslims contributed a lot to the Soviet army and their win in Europe for World War II for all of the Allies. Of course, after the war, there were a few Muslim communities that did suffer due to supposed collaboration with the fascists, but that was by no means all of the Muslims in the Soviet Union. You can't deport 15% of their population, and they did not. And it was not based off of religion whatsoever. But from now on, every time you see this iconic photograph, I encourage you to remember that Muslims were involved. And maybe you can tell your friends or colleagues, because I'm sure they don't know this. Anyways, comrades, I hope you learned something new today, and please be inspired by history. Follow me here and on all of my other accounts. Links will be down below. Okay, goodbye. Anna Louise Strong is an American journalist who in the first 30 years of the Soviet Union spent much of her life trying to humanize these people to America. She was often the first American to visit many parts of the Soviet Union, and has many anecdotes from her travels. I own almost every book she's written from this part of her life. She's written about 30 in total. Something that she does often is compare the Soviet people to her perceived glory days of America, which would be in her youth in the late 1800s. To her, the people, the attitude, the progress, and even the geography was very much the same. So let me read you a passage from The Russians Are People, written in 1943, as an example of this. Anna writes, When I come home to Leningrad district and the woods of Soviet Karelia, it is always like a return to my homeland of Puget Sound, the same endless forests pierced by a thin line of lonely railway, the same lavish use of timber and long rail fences across a rain-soaked wilderness, the people taming this wilderness wear shabby but durable clothes of the logger and miner and know how to make camp under any conditions like the men I knew in my youth. In Crimea, I am reminded of the blue skies and sunny hills of California, close to blue water. The Crimean Tatars build against their climate homes of brightly painted clay, not very different from the adobe huts or the homes Mexican farm laborers build. Kazakhstan recalls the great arid plains of Arizona, where here and there the touch of irrigation brings bountiful crops. Finally, the great Siberian plains which lead to perpetual snow on the mountains of Lake Baikal always recall the North Dakota plains and Montana, through which I have traveled so often to the snow peaks of our Northwest. She goes on to compare rural American humor with Russian humor as well. Um, but what do you think? Isn't this an interesting example? It brings people together for sure. So it's very likely that Stalin was the very first leader to enact a large-scale environmental program in history. Let me tell you about Stalin's afforestation program. After the Great Patriotic War, World War II, the Soviet Union was faced with even more tragedy, a giant drought. In order to protect themselves from future droughts, the Soviet Union thought up a plan to prevent this from happening in the future. 
On October 20th, 1948, the Council of Ministers of the USSR, Central Committee of the All Union Communist Party, adopted a resolution. Stalin's plan for transformation of local nature was the first and largest in environmental history. It was designed to permanently protect fertile agricultural lands from destructive dry winds, dust storms, moisture deficiency, and soil erosion. In accordance to this plan, forest strips were to be planted to block dry winds and change the climate on an area of 120 million hectares, equal to the territories of England, France, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands combined. By 1952, the system was basically set up and working. The quality and yields of agricultural lands protected by forest belts increased, erosion decreased, the water balance improved. Overall, the productivity of these lands grew. The measures taken led to an increase in grain yields by 25 to 30 percent, vegetables by 50 to 75 percent, and herbs by 100 to 200 percent. However, that changed with the death of Stalin in 1953. The implementation of this plan was curtailed. Many forest belts were cut down, several thousand ponds and reservoirs that were intended for fish breeding were abandoned, and 570 forest protection stations created between 1949 and 1955 were liquidated at the direction of Khrushchev. One of the consequences of this curtailment was that in 1962 to 63, there was an ecological catastrophe associated with soil erosion and a food crisis broke out in the USSR, which is where a lot of the famous food lines for bread pop up out of the 60s. You may recognize some of these photographs. Furthermore, Khrushchev's plan to create corn as a staple crop of the Soviet Union to feed livestock and counteract the food shortage was ultimately a failure as well. Anyways, comrades, did you know about Stalin's environmental program? What do you think about it? The anti-religious propaganda. In the future, I would love to talk to you about the pro-religious propaganda and the solidarity with the with faithful people propaganda that did come out of the Soviet Union as well. And also a much more academic text than the field book, Anti-Religious Propaganda in the Soviet Union by David Powell. That's who it is, yes. This goes more into the statistics of things if you're interested in that. But again, these two books are quite negative in how they speak about the experience of being a religious person. Don't even mention that the Soviet Union had religious affairs sector, which looked different all throughout history, but that in itself is a whole complex topic. It changed over time, but it was meant to benefit the people of faith and make sure that they had rights and their problems got solved separate from interfering or influencing politics and the lives of non-religious people. They did things from printing religious texts to allowing people of various faiths faith groups to come visit the Soviet Union and people from various faith groups within the Soviet Union to travel abroad and communicate with congregations around the world, things like that. Religion in the Soviet Republics, a book published at the end of the Soviet Union, I believe it was published in like 87 or 89, so it does paint more of a picture of the later years, but this goes pretty in detail as far as the numbers of mosques and churches and synagogues throughout the entire history of the Soviet Union. If you're interested in that, this is by Igor Troyanovsky. This book, The Soviet Union and the Muslim World, 1917-1918, is an interesting academic outlook into the relationship between the Soviet Union and other Muslim countries. 
not necessarily their own Muslims. Um, one of my favorite things is the first page is this, which is a cover of one of the many regional periodical type magazines. This one specifically meant for the Muslims of Central Asia, as you can see, and that's where we get this symbol that you might be familiar with, with the hammer and sickle, and the Muslim crescent moon and star. And probably the best book for understanding the Islamic diversity and just cultural diversity in general in the Soviet Union, but focusing just on the 15% Muslim population would be The Islamic People of the Soviet Union by Shireen Akiner. Wonderful book. The preface is a bit eh and negative, only focusing on the cherry-picked misfortunes of some of those Muslim communities, but ultimately full of wonderful historic snapshots of who the different peoples were. But for instance, the peoples of Dagestan, of which there are many. You'll get a historical background. You'll get all the various ethnic groups from Dagestan, which is like three pages long. Their population growth, the languages they speak, the growth in literacy of all of those languages, the number of pamphlets and books and other things, various things printed in those languages and how it um, increased or decreased over time, though it, everything basically increases up until the late 70s when this book was printed. So there's lots of cool um, information, urban and rural distribution, employment, all these sorts of things. Wonderful source. I realize I'm listing a lot of books for you. I hope it's helpful. I want you to be able to know where you can go to search for this information. But back to the poster. Why was it made? Why would someone, ignorant or not, choose to make a poster that looks like this, a woman with her breasts exposed? I mean, the same reason people make stuff like that today. The shock value, it grabs attention. You're looking at it, I'm looking at it, I can't stop looking at it, where do you think my eyes go? The same place yours does. Whether or not you are literate, you can look at that and understand what they're trying to say, whether or not it's an accurate understanding of the situation at hand. That shock factor has also led to this poster being remembered and very well preserved, feeding into our own curiosities and perversions, I suppose. Another interesting reason why she might have her breasts out like that is that breastfeeding and feminine health was something very heavily pushed to educate the masses at that time. And in this time period, there was a really famous photo of an Uzbek woman breastfeeding her child that was incredibly popular and like published everywhere. This photo was used to promote the dismantling of shame culture around perfectly natural things like using our bodies. There were just very large campaigns at the time in the Soviet Union to teach communities about these things, counteract some of the corrupted religious ideology they were given, it may have made them feel otherwise, and to teach them best practices of caring for themselves and their children, and to promote a healthy society. You know, it's not the obligation of the woman to hide her breasts, it's the obligation of men who would be tempted by that to uh, turn away or not be, you know, if you get off on seeing that, that's, that's a you problem, not a mother feeding problem. And you can argue forever on whether or not this is modest, different societies, even different Islamic societies had different expectations and perspectives of what was modest and what wasn't, what people could or couldn't wear. It changed drastically depending on where you were in the world. Even Muslim societies that are very close to each other, it's a spectrum, I suppose. 
But this is another example about how context is important. The context at this time is that this was a prevalent photograph being used to counteract the very views that might be making you look at this poster and going, oh my gosh, what's going on? And again, again, I want to reiterate that plenty of other posters depicting Soviet Muslims and Soviet Muslim women existed. They just aren't passed around as much. They just weren't preserved as well, if at all. Many lost the time because they weren't as sensational as this one, which isn't so different from our modern day depictions of Muslims today, where the more prevalent misconceptions come from the most sensational examples of Muslims doing things, whether or not what they're doing is Islamic. And think about the perspective at these women at this time. Because you can argue whether or not they want to be depicted this way. But if you live in a society that under the false name of Islam was claiming to do what is best for you by forcing you to cover your face and live separate from society, and all the regions around you are going through revolution and industrialization, and you feel physically and mentally held back, you might really love that your struggle, that your personal version of liberation through the Bolsheviks is being depicted by taking off that face garment and exposing your breasts. Individuals have individual experiences, perspectives, accounts, memories, and feelings about certain things. Not every Muslim in the world is going to agree in how they want to be represented. We can't just use one person's personal preference to define everything. While the creator and the intentions of the creator of this poster is unknown, it didn't come from nowhere. Part of it may have been ignorance, but there are plenty of Muslim women involved in the artistic scene, involved in the revolution and the change in society and standards for Muslims and women locally who could have very well been behind this illustration and enjoyed this sort of representation. It's just another thing to remember that people are going to disagree inherently in the state of mankind. Not everyone has the same experience or wants to be presented in the same way. So who knows really? I think why it's so upsetting for us today is because we automatically assume that it's Islamophobic. Many of the people who claim to be offended or ask if this is offensive, themselves don't know the prevalence of Islam in the Soviet Union, in the former Russian Empire, in the history of the region these people inhabited, and also putting modern standards and expectations onto the past. The past that they, as I mentioned, don't even understand what that looked like, who lived there, and what they did or did not do. But also, this motif is nothing unique someone triumphantly holding a flag and running to show some form of liberation or strength or perseverance. This is very, very common in many depictions in Soviet art at this time. And the most important thing is that I'm pretty sure, like 99% sure, that this is actually a reference to this very famous French painting, Liberty Leading the People. I told you that the French would come into play as many Soviet posters and motifs were inspired by French postering and French art and the French Revolution. It only makes sense that they would draw some inspiration like this. And I think you, if you see the two, it does become very apparent that it is likely inspired by this. Anyways, that painting by Eugene Delacroix commemorating the July Revolution of 1830. So there we have it some context behind this poster.
There are so many things that we could expand on and get into. Almost every single point that I brought up is its own complex and long, long topic in itself. And I think it just goes to show how understanding a single piece of political arts is not so easy. There's a society to consider, there's history to consider, there's people who are looking at it, people who are making it to consider. There's a trash man outside that's not considering me by making a lot of noise. And when it comes down to it, the majority of the people commenting on what they think this is and pushing what they think is happening or it's representing do not know what they're talking about and don't know anything about said society that it existed in. So please keep that in mind. Rarely are things so simple. And rarely are things so overtly nefarious as well. There's usually context and a reason even if it looks outrageous to you on first glance. So that's that, that very simple subject. I actually really love this poster. I think it's really beautiful in a way. Like, I like the art style. I like the composition of it. I like thinking that it might have been inspired by an actual lady and had some truth behind it. And of course, just because someone exposes their breasts, especially in a time of triumph or escaping something that is bad for them, is it really the end of the world to let loose a little bit? Allah is the most forgiving and the most understanding. He knows, but you know not. Anyways, if you like what I do here, comrades, please consider becoming a patron of mine or supporting me by following me on my other social media and here as well. I greatly appreciate you if you've stayed this far and listened to me and all of my many book recommendations, which I will also list down below. If from Within the many things I mentioned in this video, there are other topics you would like me to expand on. Please comment that as well. I would like to know what you would like to see from the perspective that I, as a crystal woman who researches Soviet history, can give you. Please be inspired by history and have a great day. Assalamu alaikum. the Soviet state compatible with the social ideals of religion? Let's take a look. Assalamu alaikum comrades, I recently came across this pamphlet, Some Answers to the Question, Is There Freedom of Religion in the Soviet Union? by British, Scottish, and American visitors to the Soviet Union in 1950 and 1951. In this, religious travelers visit various churches and cathedrals and talk to spiritual leaders in the Soviet Union, clearing up some misperceptions and just understanding the situation better in general. At the very end, there's an interesting section. Four Americans questioned Soviet Union church leader. In November and early December of 1950, 19 Americans were invited to visit the Soviet Union as guests of the Soviet Peace Committee. While there, these Americans talked with as many people as possible. Among those interviewed was the Metropolitan Nikolai of the Russian Orthodox Church. For an hour and a half, they talked to Nikolai and asked him some harsh questions. One of them being, do you believe the present state regime fulfills the social ideals of religion? His answer is really interesting to me. He says, the social ideals of religion, love, justice, equality, brotherhood, peace, are integral parts of the present Soviet system. 
Not only theoretically, but realistically, is this the case. The government is building for peace. All the people are equal. There is sincere brotherhood and true friendship between the peoples of our country. The government teaches love for labor and duty to humanity, along with love, justice, equality, which help in the development of people and in living together. I just think it's a beautiful answer and a nice way to tie in religious ideals with the ideals of a potential communist society. There's definitely equal ground there, but what do you think? Assalamu alaikum comrades. We're going to be talking about a mystery that has plagued me for over a year. A book by Anna Louise Strong that I feel must have been banned to some degree. It was never reprinted, it's impossible to buy, it never comes up for sale anywhere, and the only places that you can read it are a handful of universities and public libraries. I finally bit the bullet and picked it up from my local library, but I really feel that I shouldn't have had to. But let's talk a little bit more about books that disappear and my quest for This Soviet World, published in 1936 by Anna Louise Strong. It's been a journey. So what is book banning? According to one definition, book banning is a form of censorship. It occurs when private individuals, government officials, or organizations remove books from libraries, school reading lists, or bookstore shelves because they object to their content, ideas, or themes. Now, this isn't always overt and explicitly said, but it becomes very obvious when books disappear, when mentionings of them disappear. When they're never reprinted, it's hard to find, it's hard to obtain. And sometimes, these days, the scans of them and links to mentionings of them disappear or now lead to nowhere. A lot of you know by now that I am an avid collector of anything by Anna Louise Strong. Truly, she is my inspiration. I own many of her pamphlets and books. And as I said, this Soviet world is one book I have never been able to find for sale anywhere. Well, that's not true. I actually just yesterday found a Chinese copy for like $500, but that doesn't help me, and that was the first time that this book has come up for sale anywhere in the past year. So who is Anna Louise Strong? Why is she someone I'm inspired by, and why might her books end up banned? Well, Anna Louise was an American journalist. She first came into prominence as the first female elected to the Seattle City School Board. She played an important part in the 1919 general strike of Seattle contributing to many labor newspapers. She then went on to live in the Soviet Union for 20 years. She started the first English-language newspaper in the Soviet Union, the Moscow News. She wrote over 30 books and even more pamphlets and contributed a lot to various magazines talking about the life and the improvements of quality of life and the various peoples and really just humanized the Soviet Union to the Western world. She did many amazing things and traveled greatly, becoming very close with Mao and ultimately living the last of her years in Beijing. I'm particularly interested in her books that she wrote during her time in the Soviet Union and about the Soviet Union, but her works on China are just as interesting. Now the thing is, while she might have once been known as this radical woman in Seattle who was putting women on the map, she was arrested multiple times, and by the end of the strike, she didn't really have the favor of anyone in the U.S. 
And the only favor she gained in America after the fact was being a good in-between for the Soviet Union and the United States. She became a Soviet expert of sorts as she was one of the only people there and at one point was the longest living American in Moscow. She was often an outsider, critiqued, ridiculed, and seen with suspicion by literally everyone from every side. She used to make a living off of doing speaking tours around the United States on the Soviet Union, answering questions at universities and press conferences, but that would all dwindle down as she became more and more known as being a Soviet propagandist, and then a propagandist for Mao. Despite her genuine passion for what she did and bringing understanding between the Western world and the communist world. But I could talk about Anna for literal hours. She's absolutely worth a read, and I find that communist spaces don't talk about her enough. Maybe this one particular book I'm searching for has disappeared, but in general, her work hasn't been read enough by you comrades. But because of the nature of her work, of course I'm no stranger to critique and outrage that was pushed her way, but why would it warrant one book disappearing? When I first started reading and collecting her works, this wasn't even on any lists or compilations. The first time I heard it mentioned was on the Russian Wikipedia page for her where it was on her list of works. Moving forward, I would see it mentioned on the backs of first edition books of her works, noting it as something like also from this author or known for. Here's the back of The New Soviet Constitution, A Study in Socialist Democracy, also by Anna Louise Strong, published in 1937, the year after This Soviet World was published. I also found this archived review of her book from May 4th, 1936, and here mentioned in the Workers' Age paper. I love this one. Anna Louise Strong says that in all her public lectures on Soviet Russia, Americans have always asked many questions about the Russian Communist Party, how it functions, what percentage of the population it represents, how its policy is determined, and what the mechanics of Soviet government are. What about the life and strivings of the individual under the Soviet system? His chances for freedom of thought and expression? This book's attempts to answer these and many more questions in a language so simple that any literate person, no matter how illiterate, illiterate politically, may understand. And I, I just think that's perfect. It perfectly describes what she does and why I love her and why I also think a lot of communists these days don't like her work because it's not complicated enough. I could talk forever about how people enjoy convoluted, flowery language that's literally just there to make the author and the person reading feel better and accomplished, while you might not actually be understanding the topic better. And Anna Louise writes simply and amazingly, and it doesn't make it less valuable. Anyways, my point is, there's lots of mentionings in the form of reviews from around 1936 when it was published, up into 1940. Even in the Anna Louise Strong archive here in Seattle at the University of Washington, which is the biggest collection of her works and items, it's not even on the list of her general timeline for the archive. The official archive is called the Anna Louise Strong Papers if you want to go check it out in person yourself. But there's a general timeline that was given to show what she was doing at different points in her life. 1931 meets Joel Shubin, her husband, who is a Soviet Jew, and writes that the Soviets conquer wheat. 1932, she meets Stalin. 1934, she writes I Change Worlds. 19-
1935, she meets Eleanor Roosevelt and tries to join the American Communist Party, starts sending yearly contribution. That's a whole other story. They never took her seriously. <sighs> 1936, she resigns from the Moscow News newspaper. 1937, visits Spain twice. Yeah, right, Spain in arms. No mentioning of this Soviet world in her official archive. Weird, right? Sometimes I see it briefly mentioned. For instance, in this overview of her life in People's World, they do mention it in her list of works. Another time that I see this book mentioned would be around the time that she died. Unfortunately, a lot of the obituaries that reported on her in the United States said really nasty things. Again, calling her a communist sympathizer as if it's a bad thing and made lots of wild claims. After her death, there was also a documentary that was made about her, which you can watch on YouTube called Witness to Revolution. And it's really, really positive, which I of course love, but her haters did not. And in 1986, I found this review of Witness to Revolution. One wishes Witness to Revolution had pointed out the brushstrokes. Here is Miss Strong, for example, in This Soviet World. Fifteen years after her arrival in Moscow, she is writing about gulags. Quote, the labor camps have won a high reputation throughout the Soviet Union as places where tens of thousands of men have been reclaimed. So well known and effective is the Soviet method of remaking human beings that criminals occasionally now apply to be admitted. Interesting way of putting it, for sure. We're not used to hearing it in that perspective. They then say, and so on. Miss Strong never met a left-wing dictator she didn't like. In China, in 1966, she became an honorary member of the Red Guards. Nonetheless, Witness to Revolution insists that she left a legacy of social conscience and personal commitment. It distorts a good deal of history. So they didn't like the documentary, but they do mention the Soviet world. Then there's Twitter. I've seen people quote this Soviet world on Twitter, and people have even pointed out that the links to finding this work are no longer valid. Although they might just be copying and pasting quotes that other people have put on blogs. I think what the Espresso Stalinist blog has a few quotes from this book, but I don't know how they got it. I don't know if they read the book, or if it's just quotes that have been passed down through time, or if they picked it up from a library. Um, so people on Twitter might just be copying and pasting quotes but haven't actually read the book you know what i mean but here's some interesting citations people use from the soviet world and in one conversation someone was arguing with with a person quoting the soviet world and they say this soviet world by anna louise strong printed in new york 1936 on page 264 the link is no longer valid you'll notice she's quote hard to find one of the links they add is banned thought and their page on uh, radical or revolutionary journalists and other writers banned or difficult to find books and articles. But even going through their list and finding Anna Louise, this Soviet world isn't even on that list of works. In fact, all the books that they list are easy to find, well, at least easier to find than the Soviet world. I have some of them and others I have in my cart on like Biblio and Abe books. But I check eBay and Abe, for instance, every single day, and I have a lot of alerts. And yeah, it's just, this book never comes up, except for that Chinese version I mentioned. So the only places I've been able to find this book are a handful of libraries and universities. But then there's the Seattle Public Library, which did indeed have this book on hand. But they have a frustrating history when it comes to Anna Louise. They have a frustrating history that involves the Red Scare, in fact. Let me show you a video I made about a year ago on that. I'm currently in front of the Seattle Public Library and there's some really interesting Red Scare propaganda in the history of this place. So let's go inside. 
So our story starts in the 1930s when the Seattle Public Library looked far different than now. And the story is about the dismissal of the librarian in charge of Seattle's foreign language books, Natalie Notkin. Natalie began working for the Seattle Public Library as a clerical assistant in 1925, after graduating from the University of Washington. Notkin was placed in charge of the Seattle Public Library's foreign language books. Purchasing books in foreign languages was an important part of Notkin's job. She purchased Russian language books to expand the library's collection, in part due to the increased demand as Seattle's Russian community expanded rapidly after the Russian Revolution. This happened to be when heightened Russophobia and Red Scare propaganda began to take its hold on the United States. So in 1930, Seattle Police Chief Louis Forbes submitted a completely unsubstantiated letter to the United States Congress during investigation into communist propaganda, accusing Notkin and 17 other Seattle residents of being communists. Specifically, he claimed that Notkin was distributing communist books amongst Seattle's Russian and Finnish communities, and she was the sole public employee on his list. She professed astonishment at the charge, declaring that she was not a communist and had never attended any meetings of the Communist Party. In 1931, the library board also received a letter from the Seattle branch of the National League of Americans of Russian Origin complaining of Bolshevist literature in the Seattle Public Library's collection. Two library board members visited the president of that organization and asked for a list of such books, but no lists were ever submitted. Even library board chair John W. Efaw would officially tell the Seattle Times the reason for Notkin's discharge was that she brought and was active in distributing Russian communist literature. But ultimately, in the end, the only thing she was doing was her job to provide Russian language texts for the growing Russian-speaking community in Seattle. And the majority of Russian language texts they had in their collection at the time were actually religious texts and historical accounts of the Russian Empire. Natalie Notkin is only one example of the heightened Red Scare tactics in the United States, making people fear being associated with communism and socialism. No evidence for these claims about Natalie were ever proven. As far as we can tell, she was simply doing her job. And that's nothing she should have been dismissed for. Seattle would go on to be the first U.S. sister city to a Soviet city in the 1970s, and Natalie's case largely forgotten. Every time I walk into the Seattle Public Library, I try to find Anna Louise's works on the shelf. If you type in her name and look for her books through the computers at the library, it'll mention a few of them that should be on the shelves. And every single time, the only one that I find is Spain in Arms. There's nothing of hers in the entire Russian history section, and I go through it, like I mentioned, every single time. But you're also able to put books on hold, so I digitally put two of her books on hold, the Soviet Constitution, which I don't own yet because every copy that is for sale online is very expensive and I wanted to read a physical copy, and yes, this Soviet world. You know, I should mention that at first I was worried that maybe the Soviet world doesn't exist, maybe it's like a different version of one of her other works with a different name. For instance, the Soviets expected it and the Russians are people are both the same book of hers, but one was published in the UK and one was published in the US. They just had different names, something I didn't realize until I owned both of them. But this wasn't the case. Anyways, let's go to the library and pick that up. So I'm outside of the library now. And uh, I'm going to go in and pick up my books. Hopefully they're not miraculously uh, missing like some of them tend to be. And I'll see which books are on the shelf because, as I mentioned before, every time I've gone, only Spain and Arms is out, even though it says other ones should be. Well, some of them are in special collections, so 
we'll see what I can find and pick up this mysterious book. So yeah, here we are inside, and here's the foreign language section and their lovely selection of books. Sorry, I had to. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, I did go, and I showed footage earlier, trying to find her books in the section it's meant to be, and all they have, as always, is Spain in Arms out on the shelf. But I also wanted to show you, because I had to wait, um, they didn't have my books ready, that libraries have great resources. Look at all these Soviet Life magazines. Um, Soviet literature magazine. Your very own local library might have an archive of these magazines about the Soviet Union that were published in the Western world in English. Soviet Russia's Day is my favorite. And look how many they have, though it only starts with this one, which is badly cut as well. Look at that. Um, funny enough, I do own some of the magazines in this collection. Of course I do, but it's really worth checking your local libraries um, to see if they have these magazines archived that were sent and distributed to the West to bring understanding. You may have seen me talk about and show off these magazines before just because I love them. And there's all these that I don't own yet, that I don't have, um, that I could come here and read more about. In fact, I plan on coming back and scanning um, the articles of Anna Louise because she was a huge uh, contributor to these magazines. Oh, look, look, we just talked about her. Yeah, Dusia Vinogradova doing all the things. Love that it's covered in these magazines brought to the United States. Ah, so yeah, I had a lot of fun waiting and looking through this. Um, but what do you think? Should I go and scan Anna's articles? I'll show them here in a bit. I think I was just having too much fun looking at cool stuff. So here we have Spain and the USSR, of course, because at this time she would have come back from Spain. Plumbing and religion, I thought it was an interesting title. Uh, but here, the Soviet people uh, make a... what is it? I, don't, I, I, went, I went too fast. But Anna Louise, obviously contributing to Soviet Russia today. Um, and just look at these covers. I own this one. I yeah, that's what I'm saying there. And a new map. See, these are just full of awesome stuff. More Anna Louise. Let's see her contribution. The terrorist trial, and then who is this about? Oh, Trotskyists. Interesting, she may or may not have slept with Trotsky, so drama. Oh, uh, the workers find a way. Beautiful title, of course. The real news that stirs the Soviet land today. Um, I then go and put it back. Um, but just look how many there are. This is really wonderful. Although I quickly re realized that it had been put away. The, the way I found it was wrong, so I fixed that before you complain. And move on to the Soviet Union Review. That's from the 1920s. Um, lots of fascinating stuff. Most of the documents in here, and I don't know why, are damaged. If it's just old age or someone was angry, you'll see it, like, most of them are just split down the middle, which makes me suspicious. And then I found uh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics Information Bulletin, which is another one of the magazines that I collect, but it's straight from the um, Soviet Embassy. And yeah, I don't own any of the wartime ones. Most of what I own is right after the war. So it's really cool that they have this collection in my local library as well. And by now, my books are ready. Uh, so I have to collect my husband, who is in the... Uh, well, I don't know what he's reading, but... Hmm, interesting. And I find my books. They were put out for me, and they're both bound in the local library bounding, which is interesting. And look at the front page. 
the, someone's personal library and contribution. Here it is. This Soviet world, Anna Louise Strong, 1936. Look at these chapters. I am so excited. And oh my, was that a stupidly complicated journey just to read this book. So here it is. Uh, something that I still don't know is what the original... Uh, cover art or binding was because I only, the only one I've ever seen in person, the only one I've ever seen pictures of, is the Seattle Public Library binding of the book. I'd love to know what the cover art was. Um, book art from the 1930s especially is really, really good. So I've been reading it and I'm currently halfway through. And so far, I can confidently say this is the best overall snapshot of what the Soviet Union was. Like, it is so, like, like they said, easy to read, easy to understand. It's the perfect mix of her normal um, anecdotal travel memoir type of writing where she has all these characters and people that she's met explain the concept she's talking about through these experiences. Um, but she also goes way more into politics than she usually does. Let's let Reading is the Heart talk more about that as she gets through this book. All right, let's talk about the book because I've been reading it since I received it, so I'm only about 40 pages in. It's really good, and I have some sneaking suspicions as to why it's sort of a banned book and impossible to find anywhere. I think it's really inspiring. She hits the nail on the head for a lot of issues facing the American people at the time and the solutions to those issues through the Soviets. Most of her books tend to be very, very humanizing, which I love, and full of anecdotes um, of the people she's come across and trying to, you know, sell um, the Soviet image in people and bring solidarity. And here, so far, it's probably one of the most political-minded books that I've read from her. But yeah, so far, the first couple of chapters are laying the groundwork. Uh, and you can tell that just by the titles of these chapters. The plan for remaking the world, the chapter I just finished, The Party of Revolution. In the intro, she explains the theme of the book. This Soviet world is my theme. I give scant space to those fast disintegrating forces that fought it. I tell not the whole truth, for truth is never full. There are always at least two truths in conflict, the truth that is dying and the truth that is coming into existence. Yet I do no injustice to those many lives which in greater or less degree were wretched or broken by the coming of the new Soviet order. Even for them, the new years obliterate the past. They also change to seek their new future in the new system. Lives broken in terms of property are being remade in terms of work. Saboteurs reform and win posts of honor. Kulaks come back from exile to factories and farms. Children have an equal start now, regardless of fathers. For this war differs from other battles in that all men, even the conquered foes, are absorbed into the ranks of the conquerors, joint heirs to all the fruits of victory. Really, 40 pages in, there's already so many quotes that like, I, I would love to read for you. She even goes into explaining certain concepts of Marxism, um, something she never really does. In fact, some of the critique about Anna Louise is that she was never very political in her work, uh, as I mentioned, more focusing on anecdotes and her experiences, never considering politics her forte. 
One quote that I've already posted onto my stories that is, again, full of anecdotes, but I love that perfect mixture of fact and anecdote. Visitors to the Soviet Union are not infrequently amazed to find that a party secretary in a rural township can discuss international affairs with an assurance and abundance of detail, which few foreign editors of an American metropolitan newspaper can show, and will handle statistics and history with a good deal more ease than the brain trust. A prominent American politician once expressed to me doubts of the accuracy of the published interview of H.G. Wells with Stalin. Stalin's reference to the Cromwellian Revolution seemed to him too detailed to have been available for conversation. People, he said, don't talk that way. But any communist in the Soviet Union who did not know the essentials of the Cromwellian Revolution and of other historic revolutions from which he is expected to learn could join a class to raise his ideological level. A communist who allowed himself to become as ignorant of world affairs as the average American, average American politician would be ruthlessly cleaned out of the party or told to join the group sympathizers to learn what he has to know. I love that. It's, it's kind of a dig. And then most recently, one last thing in this little update, um, she was explaining people what it takes to be a communist and then people saying that, no, I'm not a communist yet. And that wasn't like a bad thing. It was just that like, I don't know enough to call myself a communist, um, but I'm working towards it. Like that's how seriously they were taking it at the time, how much it meant and what it meant to become and learn and be one and the seriousness and how serious it was. Again, another another thing I find interesting is one of the critiques that many people have towards Anna Louise is she didn't call herself a communist for a very long time. And some people use it to uh, say, see, she wasn't as bad, or, or some communists use that against her to call her stupid and unknowledgeable um, on things. It, it's, it's just one of those, okay. Let me just get into this. How can 3 million communists lead 170 million people? Because they are not alien to those millions, but are the most energetic part of them, whose capacity to lead has been repeatedly tested and recognized by others. Millions of non-party people today in the Soviet Union work loyally, even enthusiastically under party direction, yet do not venture to call themselves communists. One of my best friends was a woman who gave her life to the care of homeless children and who said to me once, my life began with the Soviet power. It alone gave me the chance to fight for children. I care more for the party's success than for anything in life. Yet when her fellow workers voted her worthy of being a communist, she declined the honor, knowing that she could not honestly join while she disagreed on one or two points in the party program. A 52-year-old real rights Rosenberg who I met in the Jewish Autonomous Territory of Eurobijan had courageously dismantled his home in Ukraine and taken his family of 10 to pioneer in the Far East. He had fought through incredible hardship to build a collective industry which made carts. He was now a member of the city government, giving much unpaid time to civic work. When the party decided to develop Eurobijan, he explained, I knew it would be a great future. It goes higher to the building of socialism. I myself can't build it, but if I work and others work, we'll build it. Few could have expressed the communist goal more sincerely than Rosenberg, yet he did not think of joining the party. I don't know enough, he said. I am just studying the first political courses. Seriously, reading is not easy for me. I'm 52 years old. 
In the far north, 14 years ago, I met Rimpale, who had risked his life to run the Finnish border and help the revolution. He organized the first quarries and mines in a hungry Arctic land. He created a trade union, a cooperative, and a night school for illiterate natives of the forests. He made $100,000 for the state the first summer and got for himself. It was the time of war communism only, rations of potatoes and good fat gravy in one rosling of his boots. Rampala said to me, it's a useful job up here. So near the border and the propaganda of the white Finns, we needed to have an industry to give food to the people. He was already a candidate for, co for the communist party expected to be admitted to full membership in a few months. These examples show what is required of communists, devoted activity under communist direction, such as the Jewish wheelwright gave, is not enough. 90% allegiance, such as the social worker offered, is not enough, nor was it enough for, Rump for Rimpale to work self-sacrificially to increase socially owned wealth. He must understand consciously the political purpose of his work. I have, in the, 15, in the course of 15 years in the Soviet Union, met an occasional communist who was a grafter, and many more who were stubborn bureaucrats and unenlightened fanatics. But I have also seen how the party throws out dead wood, not always accurately, and renews itself from the working class it leads. I just, you know, sorry, long-winded, a very big section, and again, only 40 pages in, I just found it really fascinating. There's so many good things already in these few pages. Um, I'm just so upset this book is not in circulation and cannot be bought and is so limited in its availability. But I'm starting to see why. Uh, this particular uh, part on the kulaks is also featured in um, Dictatorship and Democracy, a pamphlet by Anna Louise. There's a lot of things in here that definitely got shortened, simplified, and turned into a pamphlet, but really good examples. Okay, this is such a good book for understanding literally everything about the Soviet Union, even the function. I found this paragraph really helpful for people who don't understand the way of things. The basic unit for government is the working institution, the factory or office. In rural districts, it is the village. Deputies are chosen to the local government, the village, or the city Soviet. Note that Soviet means council. Mm -hmm. The basis of representation and size of the local Soviet depends on the size of the community. Gulen village, whose election I visited, has one deputy for every 40 voters in a village Soviet of 13 members. Moscow city elects one deputy for 1,500 voters and has more than 2,000 members in its city Soviets. These local deputies meet soon after election to form the new government. They divide among themselves the various departments, which range from the five sections of Gulen village, farming, livestock, culture, roads, and finance, to 28 sections each, with over 40 deputies through which Moscow city does business. Besides the more commonly known functions, these local governments own and manage local industry, which in a large city like Moscow includes many municipally owned factories, the streetcars, subway, lights, water, and housing. They receive revenue from public properties, but their budgets may also be augmented by taxes and state loans. Some cities actually bring in revenue. It will be remembered that they get all the house rents. Others need help from the higher governments. I don't know, just like I could go on, but this book is so useful. 100 pages in, this is absolutely the best book I've read as a snapshot into Soviet life. 
So yeah, it's a fantastic book. It might be my favorite of hers yet. If not this, then The Soviets Expected It is one of my all-time favorites. But again, why is it so hard to find? Why doesn't it exist? Why wasn't it reprinted? Why is it so just, just convoluted in obtaining this book? Why did Lynx disappear? Why do people quote it in disdain? I think it's very unique. I think it is, as I mentioned, just this perfect snapshot of every aspect of life and politics and way of thinking and how things just were of the Soviet Union, at least in 1936. Um, and it's so well explained and it's all positive. It's like everything you could question or ask. Um, about life in the Soviet Union, even some, with a negative spin, like, why was this happening? Why did they do that? What about this? She has an answer for you and just a wonderful explanation as to why. And I guess people don't like that. The index being especially helpful for finding an answer to anything. I love this book. It's a great book. And because it's so hard to find, I am going to use my scanner back there. I am going to scan this book just so I have a copy in my possession on my computer and because it disappears so frequently and there might be people purposely trying to take it down i don't know i, I don't think i'm going to put it on my website just yet uh, there's also like copyright laws because this is from 1936 you have to wait for like 95 years to pass but um if you join my patreon i will provide a pdf link to this book there once i have it scanned i know i know there is a tiny bit of a paywall but I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> I want to continue to be able to host um, my scans on my website. But yeah, what do you think? Isn't this just bizarre how, how books can completely disappear? Not just from memory, but like physically links not leading anywhere. And all that's left are traces of reviews from the 1930s and like hate comments from the 80s. But let me know, does your local library or university have this book? If it does, please check it out and share it with your friends because it is so good and a super valuable resource. I highly, highly recommend it. Anyways, thank you for joining me on this little journey to acquire this book and to figure out what it's all about, what the hype was. Um, it's good. That's the hype. It's good. It explains things well. I think it's the kind of book that could make a skeptic change their mind about the Soviet Union and what was going on. It also deals with probably the most inspirational time period, my favorite, of the Soviet Union, the 1920s and 30s, where everything was really changing and improving and the atmosphere was full of progress and activity and, and just massive goals that people were getting so close to achieving. You can't not smile when you read about this time uh, anyways this has become a very long video i hope you don't mind uh thank you so much for joining me and listening to me and please just be inspired by history and if you'd like to support me as i mentioned join my patreon we'll at least get a pdf of this or send a one-time donation to my paypal links are all down below including my website with other scans of things to peruse all right goodbye
Let's talk book recommendations on religion in the Soviet Union. So first, a good general book is this one, Religion in the Soviet Republics. It is a great overview of the entire history and all faiths. It was printed in 1991, so it is a very late overview, um, but it's a good, just comprehensive, basic book. It's by Igor Troyanovsky, and it's just a good place to start. Now bear with me, these next ones are going to focus primarily on Islam. Islam is my religion, so I tend to focus more on that. You've probably heard me reference this one a lot. It is Islamic Peoples of the Soviet Union by Shireen Akiner. Um, I don't have one with the cover on it, so I can't really show you what it looks like, but it's a primarily ethnographic book. It goes through every single people group in the Soviet Union, that is, Muslim. There's tons of great graphs on things like literacy rates and the improvement of knowledge in local languages and in the Russian languages. So if you want a more ethnic background and historical background of certain ethnic groups approach to Islam in the Soviet Union, this is the book for you. And also the graphs are just really useful for information of improvements on quality of life and stuff like that. Next is a recent find for me, Islam in the Soviet Union. Now this book is by Alexander Benningson and Chantal Le Mercier Collage. I don't speak French. It's translated from French into English in 1967. I forgot to mention the year of the last book. That one is 70s, I believe. But this book is fantastic. It's very, very, fairly unbiased, and there's lots of great information and insights. Um, the chapter focus is great. You start with historical background, Muslims on the eve of revolution, the national reformist movement, um, you know, Muslim national communism, communism and the Muslim religion. It's just, the topics are great, and I just love their approach. Speaking of French, I have this book, and I have it in French because the English language version is impossible to find in print. This is The Red Star and the Green Crescent by Henry Olig. There is an English version available on the Internet Archive. Um, and what this is mostly useful for is the photographs and information. Uh, there's just some really, really beautiful photos and information I've not seen anywhere else, printed anywhere else. So even if um, I'm not totally convinced on the author and how he chooses to explain things, uh, the book is worth picking up and looking through for the photographs, um, the art they include, and the captions on there. And this book is from 1983. Then we have pamphlets. I'm a collector of pamphlets and I scan them and put them on my website. But this one is worth mentioning. It is Freedom of Religion in the USSR from 1951. This is by G. Spasov. Again, there's great photographs in here. And it's probably the best pamphlet I've ever come across. There's also lots of quotes from Lenin and Stalin, the Soviet Constitution, and interviews with actual like clergy members in the Soviet Union at the time. And this one is particularly great for clearing up myths of godlessness and bans on religion. An interesting quote that is mentioned by Stalin goes, in his report to the 8th Congress of Soviets in 1936 on the draft of the Constitution of the USSR, Stalin, speaking of the amendments and addendas suggested during the nationwide discussion of the draft Constitution, said, Next follows an amendment to Article 124 of the draft Constitution, demanding that the article be changed to provide for the prohibition of the performance of religious rights. I think that this amendment should be rejected as running counter to the spirit of our Constitution. So interesting little quote showing that Stalin wasn't violently anti-religion. In fact, he uh, prevented a banning on religious rights. Interesting. 
And lastly, I just want to direct you to my website, ladyisdahar.com, under the hashtag religion. I have tons of pamphlets and articles scanned from my collection specifically on religion in the USSR. There's tons of interesting stuff that I've found and collected over the years that haven't really seen the light of day in sometimes 50, 60, 70 years. So yeah, I really highly recommend looking into those. So I hope those suggestions help you in your research and quest to better understand religious practice and religion in general in the Soviet Union. It's quite a complex topic. It greatly depends on the era and location. And I just suggest that you don't oversimplify it. Did you know that the Soviet Union created an organization meant to aid class war political prisoners around the world? Those punished for their radical views, communists and those non-party aligned, captives of capitalism. Let's talk about it. Assalamu alaikum comrades, it's been a while. Known mostly in English as the International Red Aid, though more commonly you'll see its abbreviation in Russian, the MOPR. In Russian, translating to the International Organization of Assistance to Fighters for the Revolution. I think one can understand why this sort of aid organization is needed, not just to help the prisoners, but to help their families as well. First, I want to discuss why I think it's topical right now. So as a collector of Soviet pins and badges, and someone who consumes a lot of the propaganda and political artwork from the Soviet Union, I often come across all these different organizations or badges and art referencing them. And over the past few months, I keep coming across the MOPR, and it's really been sticking with me. I think we're really going to need something like that again, if not already needing it right now. I was thinking about the TikTok hearings a couple months ago, where we literally heard regurgitated McCarthyist slogans, you know, perpetrated by U.S. elected officials. Do you know of any other employees that work for ByteDance that are part of the Chinese Communist Party? You don't know how many, but you acknowledge many must be card-carrying members of the CCP, right? It is only TikTok that is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. All these other social media companies are not. Mr. Chu, do you agree that TikTok is controlled by the CCP? Even if it is not happening yet, it could in the future. The long-term goal of the Chinese Communist Party is the demise of the American power, and that starts with our youth. Or even in recent weeks out of Florida, mock travel advisories, warning socialists and communists not to visit, and a new claim from DeSantis about what he promises to do to the radical left if he's elected president, appealing to a real section of the population who agrees with him. It seems like anti-communism is only ramping up more and more as time goes on. A whole new beast, both very similar and unlike anti-communism of the past. Just as sinister and more sinister. Sorry, my cat is really needy and demands to be pet. So the idea of an organization that is meant to aid people imprisoned or harmed due to their association with communism or the radical left really sounds appealing as it might be needed in the near future. So I think it's great to look back on these examples, to pull inspiration from, to learn from, and to just keep in mind in the back of our heads in case things get not great. Right, this year? Right. So the International Organization for Assistance to the Fighters of the Revolution was created on November 30th of 1922. 
at the Fourth World Congress of the Comintern on the Initiative of the Russian Society of Bolsheviks, Former Political Prisoners and Exiled Settlers. Notoriously, one of the chairmen of the MLPR was Clara Zetkin. At the time, nearly 10 million Soviet citizens were donating money to this organization. There was a massive want to aid revolutionary fighters, prisoners of capitalism, languishing in foreign dungeons. The need to create such a society was really seen in the 1920s, where it became evident that for now, there wouldn't be a worldwide revolution, that it would just be the Soviets creating the socialist state and experimenting and learning. There were massive anti-communist campaigns around the globe, and many communists being imprisoned. The Great Soviet Encyclopedia described this organization as follows. The MOPR unites itself to the broad masses of workers, peasants, and small employees without distinction of their party affiliation to help the imprisoned fighters of the revolution, their families and children, as well as the families of fallen comrades. By 1934, there were already 70 national branches of the MLPR, and 4 million people outside of the Soviet Union were members as well. By 1924, it was already in 19 countries. By 1932, 62 countries. One of its first international members was Spain, as it aided in the Spanish Civil War. In the United States, they had the International Labor Defense, or the ILD, Established in 1925, they were the official American branch of the MOPR. So Marxist.org actually has a great write-up about this organization, if you're interested in reading further about the American branch. As it says, uh, the ILD began with a discussion between James P. Cannon and Big Bill Haywood in Haywood's room in Moscow in 1925. Kenner recalls that the old fighter who was exiled from America with a 20-year-old sentence handing over him was deeply concerning about the persecution of workers in America. He wanted to have something done for the almost forgotten men lying in jail all over the country. A plan was arrived at for a non-partisan body that would defend any member of the working class movement without regard to personal political views. Any working class activists who came under the thumb of persecution by the capitalist legal system would be supported legally, morally, and financially. After negotiations in Moscow, an agreement was reached outlining the procedure for organizing the ILD and outlining its relationship to two Comintern-related international aid organizations, the International Red Aid, the MOPR, and the International Workers' Relief. They wanted to focus on countering groups like the Ku Klux Klan and to defend high-profile and controversial cases. It essentially became the legal branch of the Communist Party in the U.S. Overall, the Red Aid and the ILD had some massive cases. Even Antonio Gramsci, of all people. As I mentioned, one of my first introductions to this organization was through badges and pins. So I thought I'd show you what some of those were. The first badge of the Soviet MOPR was for members of the society. It had the shape of a pentagon symbolizing the five continents, a globe entangled in chains, and in the upper half, a rising sun as a symbol of freedom. The second badge made for the organization was for the most active members in the society. This badge is very similar as the first, but it's now surrounded by a wreath of oak branches and wheat. And at the top is a red banner that says activist. Over the years, many badges would be made by this society, but a common theme was the image of a window of a prison cell from which a prisoner's hand is stretched out clutching a red handkerchief. Sadly, on February 12th of 1948, the Soviet branch of the MOPR would be dissolved, having completed its tasks. Did it? Did they not foresee how aggressive McCarthyism would become? 
or the things we still have happening today. And a lot of people don't know about this organization or remember it. The only sign of it remaining for many decades in the Soviet Union were streets named after the organization. Moprovsky Streets. Upon further investigation, there is currently an organization called the International Red Help, though they seem to focus more on arming and funding resistance um, rather than legal cases, but it's interesting that they exist with this namesake, so that's worth looking further into. Have you heard of them? So today we may have some organizations that are kind of similar. Would they really take on a case of someone who's a full-fledged communist? I don't know. There's plenty of organizations who would consider that bad optics or something. Especially with the ramped up anti-communism today, organizations that rely on public funding want to keep the public's opinion of them decent. And communism is more and more controversial these days. Yet again, like we learn nothing from history. But what do you think? Have you heard of this organization before? Do you know of others like it? Can you foresee a near future where comrades and their families will need this sort of assistance due to imprisonment or worse? I'd like to know your predictions, or if things are already that bad where you are. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I have to say on that topic. I want to apologize for the long absence and less frequent uploads across the internet from me. I've been struggling pretty hard with my brain lately and let me scooch up to you and get personal but yeah i've been struggling pretty hard with my brain lately i know like adhd is a stupid excuse sometimes you really get stuck and demotivated and just unable to to function it's crazy how brains work but i've been dealing with that since before right before ramadan started so i'm so sorry about my cat she's horny Anyways, I've been working really hard lately to improve my mental capacity and my motivation. I'm, I'm working out, I'm eating healthier, I'm trying different methods. I just want to thank you for sticking around even when my uploads have been less frequent. It's just been hard and I don't have a good like physical excuse to why. It's literally just like my brain not working. <laughs> like, I really wanted to have um, those badges for you to show, but uh, they're quite expensive, at least those that aren't copies, so fortunately I don't have like a spare 50, 70, 80 dollars laying around for like single individual badges. Yeah, thank you for watching this far and letting me ramble on. I really appreciate you guys. You are too nice to me and I just, your support means the world, especially when my brain isn't working and I'm feeling down and bad about myself. So thank you, genuinely. Your positivity has helped me make positive decisions. Please be inspired by history. Goodbye. Hope everyone is doing okay in this heightened time of a lot of feelings. One of the most atrocious things I've seen in the past couple of days are posts on social media about women, specifically Ukrainian women. You might have seen this post from Corn Hub. There's also this post that's been circulating on Greek social media that a follower of mine translated for me. In essence, it expresses how excited men are that the new wave of immigrants will be women that they basically view as sex objects. Some even going so far as to say it'll be a nice change from the usual immigrants that they get. Pleasant, right?
And of course, it's bad enough that in a time of war and crisis, not only are these women being sexualized, but so is their pain and suffering. And it got me thinking a lot about another issue that I want to talk about, because this sort of stigmatization of Eastern European or Slavic women isn't anything new. And surprise, surprise, it all leads back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union gave women monumental rights for the time. The early days were full of experimentation with new ideas, a new image for women, and new expectations, those that are equal to men. In fact, the Soviet constitution from the very beginning stated this. Women in the USSR are accorded equal rights with men in all spheres of economic, state, cultural, social, and political life. Anna Louise Strong, one of the first Americans to visit many parts of the Soviet Union, published this booklet in the 1920s labeled Marriage and Morals in the Soviet Union, where she features a lot of interesting accounts of what she was seeing at the time. One point that she mentioned that I didn't know about until recently was on illegitimate children. Let me read you what the new laws in the Soviet Union were in regards to illegitimate children. Anna wrote, there is no illegitimate children. Any woman about to have a child can file a statement regarding the father three months prior to birth. The supposed father is then informed, and if he does not within two weeks deny it, he is assumed to accept the support of the child. If the case comes to court, these cases have precedence over all others, so that the woman may not be kept waiting. Parents' rights over children exist only for the good of the children. Mothers and fathers have equal rights. If the father wants the child to enter the consumal and the mother doesn't, who decides? Not as in the past, the husband by beating, the wife. But it comes to court. If the case is serious, a judge will decide. This is 1927. Another really interesting thing that Anna Louise Strong wrote about that I want to highlight is how they dealt with old traditions, be that in rural Russia or in other people groups with long-standing cultural ties and traditions. How did they address it? So let me read this to you because it's just really fascinating and I don't see a lot of people talking about this. So Anna writes, even the compulsion of old tradition is fought whenever possible. But what does she mean by fought? It's really not as aggressive as it sounds. A young girl of Tartar family told me her love tale. Her married sister died, and according to tribal custom, the bereaved husband proceeded to take to wife the younger sister. The girl did not like him, but was very young and without will to oppose her parental and tribal pressures. When she came before the registration officer, she was three times asked, Are you sure you want to do this of your own free will? Are you sure you want this man? Remember, no ancient custom has power to compel your marriage now in the Soviet Union, unless it is of your own free choice. Intimidated by the surrounding relatives, the girl stammered that it was her free choice, and the registration officer completed the formalities. But that night, the girl found the relation impossible. For several nights, the husband, unwilling to face the shame of open rejection, continued to woo her with self-control and consideration. At last, finding that she could not bring herself to accept him, she fled from his roof and got a divorce without further ado from a registration officer who told her simply, I knew you'd be coming back. So again, some insight how if they wanted to maintain these traditions, they were totally allowed to. She went to the city to school and met a young student of her own race, Tatar, 
by whom she had a child. He wished to marry her, but lacked her energy of will to oppose his parents, who considered it a shame to take her into the family, not because she had yielded their son without marriage, but because by tribal custom she belonged to her dead sister's husband. After living for three or four years with this man and finding him too weak-willed to complete the marriage, she left him and married a Russian. In all this story, there is nothing which the girl should be afraid to have known among any friends she may make in the city. None of it is regarded today as a disgrace in Russia, 1927. If she apologizes for any part of it, it is for the lack of willpower which led her into the first contract and humiliated her husband, and that, of course, she and others excuse on the grounds of inexperience and youth. Isn't that just insightful of the times? Coming up is Women's Day on March 8th, once a political holiday where women were celebrated and given awards. Today, it's become more of a commercial holiday where women are gifted flowers and chocolates. And sometimes these days, though it is a holiday in which people have the day off in all former Soviet republics, unfortunately, a lot of the times women are forced to cook, clean, and prepare a celebration on Women's Day and take care of everything so is it you know really a day off a lot of people like to argue that in the soviet union this was also the case that women both had a job at home as the cook and cleaner and a job for it for instance in a factory while this may be the case sometimes on an individual level men were heavily encouraged and pressured into taking up their fair share of household work the idea of men's and women's chores and jobs wasn't the same as we perceive it today or in the Western world, so it's really hard to apply that. And then, of course, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, a lot of things changed. Really starting in Glasnost era is when things started to go downhill, but ultimately, after the dissolution, things just got way worse. So what happened exactly? How did things change so drastically? Why today? In the Western world, do we perceive Slavic and Eastern European women as these over-sexualized beings? Why are they depicted as such in media, in cartoons? Maybe you've seen illustrations like this. The stereotype of a male-ordered bride heightened sex tourism in these places. And even worse, human trafficking. This publication by Gail Kligman said that the collapse of communism catapulted the former socialist countries into the global economy. The availability of cheap labor in potential markets brought multinational corporations, banks, and manufacturers to the region. Directors of pornographic films and magazines, as well as international sex tourism agencies, also flocked to the former socialist states, where there was then little threat of institutional regulation or enforcement. The Human Rights Review on Human Trafficking in Russia and Other Post-Soviet States from 2010 also states that every year between 20 and 60,000 Russian women become victims of traffickers, and no less than 500,000 at that time have been trafficked from the country since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russia has become one of the largest exporters of women for the sex industry. And while I can't quite find any statistics for daring Soviet times, one could imagine with how strict they were on documents and their borders, not much left without notice. It is indeed Moldova, a former Soviet Republic, that holds the highest rate of human trafficking, something completely new to the region following the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The fault here is really capitalism. Of course it is. People taking advantage of these young women's newfound 
financial instability. When the Soviet Union collapsed, many people lost their entire fortune overnight. They no longer had an income. Some no longer had a place to stay. And what does that lead to some of the time? Desperate times, desperate measures. And over time, those desperate measures become stereotypes. And they are happily taken advantage of by men of the West. The following clip I'm going to show you Truly, viewer discretion is advised, as you might find what these children say to be quite uncomfortable. Now that video was filmed after the fall of the Soviet Union. And while things have changed a little bit, as I mentioned, those stereotypes have truly stuck. And we see this. We see this now, even in an extreme time of people seeking stability during war. There's also TV shows like 90 Day Fiance that continue to perpetuate these negative stereotypes of the overly sexualized Eastern European woman only out here for money. Can you blame those women who are on mail-ordered bride sites? What do you think started the demand? Women needing food and shelter and stability and men desperate and disgusting enough to take advantage of women in those situations. TV shows like 90 Day Fiance only aid in helping people justify their gross behavior by saying, well, she's just a gold digger. Why did she need to dig said gold? Would she have needed to if the Soviet Union was still around and all of these people had stability and income and work? If they hadn't been brainwashed by capitalistic propaganda that now flows throughout the former Soviet Union and is idolized and romanticized by these people even. Even in my own life, when people find out of my ancestry and where my family is from, I often get gross comments of, well, I've always wanted to be with a Serbian girl or you know, Eastern European, despite, you know, my ethnic background being Danube or Banat Swabian, a Germanic minority in Eastern Europe, not a Slavic one. That doesn't matter. They hear Eastern European women and they automatically sexualize it, regardless of the correct ethnographic information. I've heard horror stories from places like Romania, where women can't even be sure that their own boyfriends are not going to traffic them. Many instances of dating men for weeks, sometimes months, only to go on a couple's trip and realize that they're being sold, sometimes never seen again. The financial instability of the people of these places not only affects those women who are directly forced into things like trafficking, but it even makes the men take advantage of their own women in that way as well. 
And so in this time, as I see searches on questionable websites for specifically women currently going through conflict in Eastern Europe, while I'm not surprised, I'm very saddened by it and by the lack of outrage over it. Hopefully, these stereotypes ingrained in us since the fall of the Soviet Union has not made us insensitive towards these harsh realities. And I hope, comrades, that you stand up for your sisters who are being taken advantage of and sexualized in this time. It's not okay, and we can all blame capitalism for it in the end. And that I think a lot of people can get behind, at the very least. I also want to add that while this primarily focuses on the over-sexualization of Eastern European women, it's important to note that that is one of the only acceptable ways to represent them. If they're not being sexualized, in which they are at least slightly tolerable, then they are being depicted as thieves, or in the mob, or some sort of spy. And so unfortunately, that sexualization is actually the most positive option in representation. Just something to think about. It doesn't make it okay, but it's the lesser evil of sorts. The most positive depiction they can manage of us. Anyways, I hope you're all doing okay out there. I know we're all in a heightened sense of anxiety and feelings and who knows what will come to light in the coming weeks. But please use your brain, be inspired by history, and um, yeah, consider supporting me here by subscribing to my YouTube channel, following me on Instagram or TikTok, and perhaps becoming a patron of mine. All right, I hope you have a great day, a great week, and I hope no one close to you is suffering too much due to everything out in the world. Goodbye.